0: on this episode of Risky Business.
1: For me, at a very broad level, effectiveness is that the employees who want to do the right thing know what the right thing is and how to do it.
0: I'm Steve Muddyman, and this is Risky Business, a show from GAN Integrity covering the wide range of issues in compliance and ethics, but with one goal in mind empowering your people to do the right thing. Compliance officers rarely have people seek them out and express an interest in supporting a compliance program. It's exciting when that happens, and our guest today, Deborah Spanick, is here to share her experience. Deborah is the Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer at Clarios. She joins me to share how she's developed a framework that encourages participation in compliance. In our conversation, she explains the importance of leaders who model the culture you want to foster, how to develop a compliance program people want to participate in, and how to effectively adapt to changes through collaboration. Along the way, I also learned that automotive batteries are 99% recyclable. Who knew? As you listen, think about ways you can involve your people in compliance and collaborate with other functions in your organization. How can you develop compliance ambassadors and better equip your peers to champion compliance on their teams? Welcome, Deborah Spanick, Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer at Clarios. Deborah, it's great to have you here today.
1: It's great to be here, Steve. Thank you.
0: So some may not necessarily know who Clarios are, and for our listeners, they are around the world. I'm sure they'd love to know who Clarios are, how you operate, the kinds of businesses you're in and where geographically you are located.
1: Happy to share about our great company. You don't know us by name, but you probably have experienced our products. We are one of the world's largest manufacturers of automotive batteries. One in three cars in the globe have a Clarios manufactured battery. We are often hidden (laughs) under the hood of your car or the bonnet if you're in the UK, right, Steve? But yeah, we were originally part of Johnson Controls, We were spun off from Johnson Controls about three years ago as our standalone automotive battery business. We operate in almost every country of the world. We have 16,000 employees globally. And we have really had, even though we're young by name, we've got well over 100 years of experience in battery manufacturing.
0: So many of our listeners will likely be driving electric cars. I'm sure they are very environmentally friendly audience, I'm sure. Some of the brands that I guess we all know and love will likely have your products.
1: Absolutely. And one of the interesting things about electrification, not to get too far down the technical side of the discussion, but one of the interesting things is that even in cars like a Tesla, for example, that has a, a lithium ion or a lithium-based powertrain still needs to have one of our 12-volt batteries, and it's a safety issue. If that battery management system dies, that means your power steering dies, your power brakes die. You don't want that to happen on a freeway or when you're traveling. You need to be able to safely get off the road. That's one of the many reasons why our batteries are going to be here for a very long time to come. In addition, we also have lithium ion batteries and we're also making inroads into that space as well.
0: And with 16,000 employees, as you said, one assumes they're in all parts of the world.
1: Correct. We've got headquarters in Shanghai, China, regional headquarters in Monterey, Mexico, and regional headquarters in Hanover, Germany. So we operate in every continent of the globe. Oh, except for Antarctica. I don't think we have anything in Antarctica, come to think of it. I'm sure some of our batteries might be there, but I don't know that we, I don't think we have any operations in Antarctica.
0: I suspect you may well have some batteries up there. I'm sure we'll all find out at some point. So with the fact that this is a very topical issue that you are dealing with in the industries in which you serve, we all understand the importance of electrification, the impacts on the climate. How does that play out for you in terms of how you know the business runs? So when we talk about the specifics of you as the leader of ethics and compliance within Clarios, what are the sorts of high-level issues or the issues that you're dealing with in terms of risk, compliance, ethics, when you think about that across the organization and your position as the leader of that team?
1: I think one of the most important things that we focus on in the compliance team and that we focus on with our executive leadership team is our ethical culture. We have a long history of being part of Johnson Controls, of being part of an ethical culture, building that culture, fostering that culture. It's extremely important to us and we've got data that we're starting to gather about the real world impact of having an ethical culture and fostering that culture within our organization we had a situation in one of our regions in in latin america where we had received some reports from one of the employees an anonymous report actually there were a number of them that we investigated and long story short Over a period of about a year, and through about a dozen different investigations that cropped up from that initial report, the team in the region ended up getting rid of almost 30 employees, all at the leadership level. And those changes have transformed that organization. So they went from having a very poor culture, a culture that had a lot of fear of retaliation, fear of speaking up to a culture that's extremely productive, open, people share, they are honest, and their actual financial results have shown a dramatic improvement as well. And I don't think it's a coincidence.
0: What you're saying is you've understood and seen the impact of behavioral change, impact on the wider culture, and a direct correlation to, let's use the term enterprise value, if we can. How do you go about making that happen? Because it's not just down to one person, is it? It's actually about a a sea change of individuals wanting to be part of a movement of change, if you will. How do you go about fostering that kind of environment such that people want to participate?
1: I'm very lucky in that we have fantastic leadership in our organization. We have leaders in every region across our company who really do demonstrate our values and are really great ethical leaders. And that's probably one of the most important takeaways from this is that, to your point, we can't do it alone. We have a very lean compliance team, and we really depend on that ownership and accountability on the part of every leader in our organization and every employee in our organization to embody those values. If we don't have leaders who truly talk, walk the talk, right, then stuff's not going to stick, right? People can see through paper programs. People can see through, I'm just saying the words, but I'm doing something different over my shoulder. And unless you have individuals who are truly demonstrating that leadership every single day, it's going to be a challenge. But when you have those leaders, like our leaders in the region that I was referring to, who truly are committed to supporting our values, who truly are committed to making their business, their location, a better place for our employees, then anything's possible.
0: That sounds fascinating. And I'm just trying to picture myself in the organization. When I think about what you said there, you clearly need the attributes of a good leader to be able to feel that they're going to take that that on board and communicate through that that through their organization. But they also need a fabric around them, don't they, to support them to be able to do that. Otherwise, you could have those three major regions all doing something somewhat different. But Broadly, following a a common direction, how do you provide the framework for consistency and keeping people current and sharing everybody's reminded of the values of the organization and constantly providing that cultural framework, if you like, upon which everybody can participate equally?
1: I think we're very lucky in that when we first established our formal compliance program, we started it from the beginning with the right level of accountability and ownership of our leadership in every region in which we operate. So our vice president general managers in each region, in each country actually, are required to support the compliance program, and they are held accountable to supporting the compliance program. It's an interesting balance that you have to take, because if you are a person who feels like they need to have control over everything, that challenges the likelihood that individuals are going to want to take that ownership, right? If they're just being told what to do and how to do it, they don't feel like they have that sense of ownership. That being said, you have to still provide that framework and that structure, which we do from a global perspective. But we also understand that each one of our regions operates quite differently. They have different risks, different challenges, and we need to respect that and provide them the guidance that fits the business that they're in. Because even though We're making batteries all around the world. How we do that, how we go to market, it varies in in almost every location that we operate in. So we need to make sure we're respectful of that. We have a structure that supports that. We have a very lean global compliance team, and we have a very broad regional compliance support. So we have four people on our global team, and we have 42 individuals that are embedded in our business throughout our organization. Who support compliance on a I'll call it a part time basis, right? There, sometimes people call them compliance champions or compliance ambassadors. I like to think that our teams that are supporting compliance go much beyond that typical role. They're not taking orders and doing what we tell them to do. They are truly embodying compliance in their region. They are participating in their regional leadership meetings. They are holding regional compliance committee meetings and. Part of the thing that I have instructed our global team is I don't want us participating in their regional meetings because that tends to stifle that honest and frank communication. They will hold their meetings in their native language, which is fantastic. If we're there, they sometimes feel like they have to default to English and that can stifle that communication, too. So it's a little bit of a you have to let go of some level of that control, still maintaining a level of oversight and governance. But you have to let go of some of that level of control and accept the differences to get the real benefit of ownership.
0: And those picking up on your words, ambassadors come champions. Are they individuals that are in various parts of the organization that just happen to be in those regions?
1: For sure. We have people supporting compliance in our regions who are from the procurement function, the finance function, the commercial function, the legal function, manufacturing, all across the board. We find these individuals tend to be people that at the regional level are considered high potential, people who we want to develop into future leaders in the organization or further develop as leaders in the organization. And participating in compliance actually gives them great exposure to the executive leadership team, to the global team, because they're working cross-regionally in their particular area of compliance, meeting their colleagues in different regions that they maybe never would have met before. And as they move on out of the compliance role, we're seeding those individuals in their roles in the business who already have that deeper understanding of compliance. So win-win, right? Oftentimes people are moving on from those roles because they got a promotion, which is fantastic, right? That's what we want.
0: Does the organization, this is slightly away from the conversation, but I think very important point, given what you just said there, you talk about the fact that the business has what appears to be a very clear strategy around developing and skilling the organization. It doesn't always mean necessarily that people get promoted, but they want to broaden their influence, their knowledge, their ability to be able to participate in different parts of the business and bring a different kind of value to the organization. So. When we think about those individuals you mentioned, they're in procurement, they're in HR, they're in various other parts of the business. You've almost got that sort of bottoms up, groundswell, if you like, of desire to want to facilitate change as much as you have the top-down leadership that you described there facilitating or providing the framework upon which that can happen, right? So that's got to be a win-win for you.
1: It is. Yeah, it absolutely is. And again, it's a bit of a happy accident, right? When we first established the program over 10 years ago, it was necessary. I didn't have a budget to hire a dozen compliance professionals in every region of the world. So this was born out of necessity from a budgetary perspective, but in the end and over time has really grown, I think, to be the greatest strength of our compliance program is our regional compliance structure and how we manage that, how we govern that, and then how, let's put it this way, I never have to beg someone to participate. People come to us and say, the next time there's an opening, I want to be on your team. I want to participate in compliance. I want to support this program.
0: You're in a very lucky position. Most,
1: I know I am. I completely agree.
0: Most are pushing on a closed door. In this case, you mentioned just now some of the different risks and different challenges which the business faces in different regions around the world. Can you talk to some of those so that folks can understand the kinds of challenges that you face, you know, on the series? We've heard from such a diverse group of organizations and obviously their risk profiles vary and differ and the challenges are hugely different. I'd be interested to hear what issues you deal with.
1: It really varies, right? Everything from there's always concern about trade, right? We're a global business. Now, granted, most batteries, the majority of our batteries are sold in the regions in which they're produced because if you've ever lifted up a car battery it's an extremely heavy product right it's filled with lead so we tend to not ship batteries necessarily cross-border although that sometimes does happen but supply right supply chain it's a huge issue it's a huge risk when we think about the kinds of products that we're procuring where they're coming from ensuring that the supply chain is also ethical and compliant is always a challenge, particularly, again, when you have a business that's as broad and has as much of a global reach as ours does. That's always an interesting thing to deal with. We also, when you think about data privacy, right, that's interesting because you wouldn't think a manufacturing company would have significant risk around data privacy, but part of what we're dealing with right now in particular is just the proliferation of regulations that We're not there 10 years ago. When you think about where GDPR is going, when you think about where Brazil has now gone, where China is going, where the U.S. is going in various states from California to West Virginia, across the board, staying on top of that, again, with a very lean team is definitely a challenge and something that we're always looking at and looking at improving.
0: Just on on some of the points that you talked about there, given the, the world that you're in and the world that you serve, there must be a significant environmental and social governance role to play here. Given the kinds of materials you're dealing with, the regions in the world that you're dealing with, where does that sit in terms of the levels of importance, focus that you, your team and the regions are having to deal with right now?
1: ESG is of strategic importance to our business, and it it has been. We have a very long history of environmental responsibility and sustainability. That has been with us for an extremely long time. Lead is probably the biggest source of material for us. Lead can be challenging in terms of environmental impact. This is an area that we've put a lot of focus on. Our team, our foundation has actually supported a program called Protecting Every Child's Potential that has been developed in conjunction with pure earth and UNICEF to really address the issues of lead in communities around the world. And we pride ourselves on being one of the world's longest running and most successful circular economies nearly in the U S in particular, but in many other regions, nearly every battery that we sell is supported by a battery that's returned to us for recycling. So, Batteries, believe it or not, are the most recyclable product in the world. 99% of an automotive battery is recyclable and gets recycled. And we have recycling centers around the globe that support that and ensure that we are capturing those materials and keeping them out of the environment and out of communities and managing that. That's extremely important for us.
0: I had no idea that 99% of batteries are recyclable. Right?
1: So you're learning something new.
0: <laughs> I have. Let's move from lead to data. You mentioned about data privacy. I sit in a market where GDPR is hugely important and hugely relevant, and individuals are protected by pretty strong regulation in place for that. You talked about the ever-changing landscape regarding regulations. How does a small team like yours, the one the team that you described just now, how do you keep on top of those changes? How do you enable the organization to be agile to adapt and adopt those changes? How does that work?
1: Well, again, I think a key to that is our collaborative approach. So we do not operate compliance in a vacuum. We have a very close tie with our legal teams. I sit in the same organization. So I report into the general counsel. So I sit in the same organization as all of our regional lawyers do. And they work very closely with us and we work very closely with them and we support each other because they're a lean team too. So having that great relationship, we get often a good sense of what's coming down the road that we need to be aware of in various regions around the world in which we operate. In addition, the benefit of our diverse regional compliance team is that I've got people, again, from procurement, from HR, and all these different regions of the world, we have regular communication with that group, many different touch points of communication with those individuals. They are always bringing up issues that they're seeing coming in their particular area. Great example, the individual who actually leads our global anti-corruption program is in procurement in Europe. So he was well aware of the German Supply Chain Act that's coming down, made sure that we were aware so that we could stay on top of it, quickly understand what was coming and what we needed to be prepared for.
0: Just as I think about what you were talking about there, Deborah, we talked about data from a regulation perspective or regulatory perspective. Thinking about data within your organization now, you mentioned the ambassadors and the champions that are cross-functional. You didn't mention marketing, but I'm sure that was purely oh, a nervous. Oh, they're there night.
1: too. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> I
0: thought they might be. Is there data that's shared through the systems or the integrated with the systems that have as part of the DNA of your organization? So I'm thinking specifically, you mentioned HR just now. You mentioned procurement. They will have their own systems. They will have their own tech stack, if you will. What is what you do within compliance and the data that you clearly can aggregate? You have a lot of it, a lot of insight that you can generate as a result of seeing that data. Does that play down into and connect with some of the other systems that sit within the business?
1: It does, and sometimes not formally, but it actually does in terms of in practice, right? So the way I guess I would think about it is we have touch points. I have touch points with every functional leader at the executive level, at least quarterly, sometimes monthly. We're continually sharing Information that we're learning within our specific functions and looking for opportunities to leverage what each party knows right and what each party has access to. in addition, one of the things that we've really focused on as our new company as Clarios for the last three years is ensuring that we're being much more transparent about what we see and what we learn about in compliance, much more transparent about the issues that come in through our helpline, for example, or that we're managing through investigations not only from an aggregate perspective and sharing that very broadly. So that actually gets published on an annual basis to our entire employee population. So they see the high level these are the kinds of issues that we've been dealing with in the last year. These are the countries in which we've had some of these issues. We talk about that very transparently with our employee base. But even in terms of the discussion that that I have with our executive leadership team every quarter discussion that I have with our audit committee of the board every quarter, we're continually looking for ways to both leverage the information that our other functional groups have, but also share the information that we have with everyone else. And it's been great. Partnership with HR has been fantastic. With our finance team has been fantastic. You really have to build those relationships so that you can allow for that collaboration and that sharing of information and data across the silos.
0: I've not heard people talk about the publishing of the aggregate data with the employees within an organization. That's fascinating. What sorts of reactions do you get from individuals when you start to, to make that become visible?
1: I don't know that I necessarily have specific reactions, but what I see in our data is a increase in the speaker culture. So the more that we share The more comfortable I believe our employees feel that they can be in raising issues, that the more trust that they have in our process and in our system, that when they report a concern, which is a very, very difficult and challenging thing to do, that we will address it, that we will take a look at it, that we will investigate it, and that if it is proven to be substantiated, that we will take appropriate action. I see it in the numbers, right? I've been tracking since we became Clarios, right? I've got clear information about where we were, the reports, I look at all the sort of benchmarking data, reports per thousand employees, how we compare to benchmark, is that number improving over time? Are we seeing regions where we maybe have a little bit more of a challenge? We do an ethical culture survey every other year and we actually did it two years in a row when we separated because we really wanted to get a good baseline And then see where we were the following year. And now we're on a biennial schedule. And when we see areas of the organization that maybe are challenged in terms of their comfort in speaking up, we take very focused and targeted action to support those employees and educate those employees and hopefully improve that culture in those parts of the world. And we've done that. We've actually proven it.
0: We'll come back to that in a minute. As you were talking there, I was thinking about, is Clarios an acquisitive company?
1: We're held by private equity. And I don't want to say we're acquisitive in the sense of willy-nilly, that's our driving strategy, right? When an opportunity is appropriate, the company will absolutely review that opportunity, but it's got to really fit within our, bro- our broader strategy. Our leadership takes a very strategic view to any kind of acquisitions. In the time that we've been Claros, I think we've only had two. One was majority ownership in a joint venture that we had for years and years in Turkey. And then the other was a battery recycling operation in Spain. So again, very closely aligned with our business, not too far afield, and very strategic acquisitions.
0: Where I was going with the question, was more to the point with regard to you bringing in employees into this highly performant culture, open culture that you describe. You've got a genuine sense of openness and transparency and everybody playing their part. Often, I'm sure you could see a situation where individuals come into a business and they will have quite different values from where they come from within to their business and of course assimilating others into a business surely could be quite a challenge.
1: It can be a challenge and it also can be not as much of a challenge and it depends. The acquisition we made in Spain has been pretty straightforward. We already have I don't even know how many nearly a thousand employees in Spain. We have a number We have a number of plants and, and operations in Spain so The integration of that business has been, I'm knocking on wood here, relatively seamless because the language is there, the location and proximity is there to our existing businesses. In Turkey, it's been a little bit more of a challenge, right? Language is an issue. They are far afield in terms of from our regional headquarters. And so we've had to pay special attention and be especially deliberate in terms of how we support that business, bring them up to speed with what's expected of them as a being a part of Clarios and giving them the time and the room to ask those questions, to raise their concerns and for us to address those concerns so that they can be a successful part of our business.
0: So we've talked about ESG, we've talked about 99% battery recycling.
1: You are gonna carry that one with you for a long time, aren't you?
0: <laughs> it's not a difficult one to remember, is it? And we've talked about power of people on the ground contributing and participating. We've talked about regulatory challenges and adaptability around regulations that are forced on the business. We've talked about transparency of the data and engaging the stakeholders across the business. What's next on the roadmap for you in terms of where is Deborah and her team heading next? What's the next set of big issues you're having to think and deal with?
1: For us, it really is since we've had this program now for three years, we started the work in this last year to refine. And improve our program. So, when we separated from Johnson Controls, we did a lot of sort of copy paste, right? We just brought over what we had at Johnson Controls. And we spent the last year really taking a fresh look at everything that we brought over and made sure that it still really fit with our business and fit with, and that was as efficient and integrated as it could be into our business. That's continual work and work that we're still focused on because we can still improve. And a big focus for me is the data and the metrics? Are we, and I know this is something that you hear all the time in any kind of compliance conference or meetings or associations, it's metrics, metrics, metrics.
0: What does effectiveness look like for you when you think about, so you said it's challenging getting the data. I don't think that's a, you'll find too many people challenging that question, but what does effectiveness ultimately look like if you were to be able to wave a magic wand and say this is what i'm looking for
1: the way i think for me at a a very broad level effectiveness is that the employees who want to do the right thing know what the right thing is and how to do it you're always going to have an individual who's gaming the system who's doing something who's sort of wired right to misconduct I'm not worried about those individuals, right? We'll catch them with controls or with reports or things like that. But for the employees that want to do the right thing, making sure that they know what the right thing is to do, and they have the support and ability and know how to do it. That's effectiveness to me.
0: What's the big thing that you personally have learned over the last three years of leading the team since the divestiture? Has Deborah learned over the last three years of some of the key things that have shaped you and your thinking?
1: I think the biggest lesson that I've learned is that we cannot operate in a vacuum, that we have to be open and receptive to our peers, to the others in our organization, that we're all on the same team, and that we won't succeed unless we truly work together and break down any of those silos. That's probably the most important thing that I've learned.
0: Fascinating. Talking of your team, you mentioned it's a small team. How are they doing?
1: They are fantastic. You said earlier in the call that I'm lucky. I am very lucky. I have an amazing team. They've come through the pandemic and all of those challenges with flying colors. And in some ways, I think even more productive, more engaged, more focused on our program. They all really bring their best selves and contribute their best to the company. They're a fantastic group of individuals, all of them are.
0: You mentioned earlier about some of the the obvious challenges from how you operate within the different regions. You talked about distribution being one of those, being a key aspect of what you think about. We haven't mentioned sanctions, and we should mention sanctions, I think, given that we have a war in Ukraine, and we all understand the implications of that. How have you had to deal with? various sanctions that have been imposed on the business as a result of that war and indeed other conflicts around the world?
1: Um, obviously, it's been a challenge. Tammy Sacharsky, who leads our trade compliance a global program, has done an amazing job with her team um, to ensure that as uh, new sanctions come on board, that all of the business is aware of it. We have support from our executive leadership team on all of that. So it's never a question about maybe we can do this or maybe we can do that. It's that the business is very clear about what they're able to do and what they're not able to do. And we make sure that they understand that and that we work the business to address those issues. It's obviously been a challenge, I think, for a lot of businesses that operate in Europe, right? Energy prices, that's a huge issue and a huge challenge for the business. And one that I don't know necessarily there is a quick solution to. So it's really just working with our business, making sure that our business understands what the new rules of the game are and that they understand that we're here to support them and that we will make sure that they don't step on any of those proverbial landmines and that they have awareness. And if they have questions, that they know they can come right to us and we will help them.
0: Deborah it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Really appreciate your candor and your insight. And I don't think I need to wish you luck. It sounds like you've got all the luck in the world. So again, thank you very much for joining us on Risky Business. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for listening to Risky Business. For more insights and resources, check out the show notes or go to ganintegrity.com and be sure to follow along wherever you get your audio.